calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Howdy, and welcome to the Lightspeed Magazine Story Podcast. I'm your host, Jack Kincaid, or a component thereof. Forgive me if my voice doesn't sound lovely today. I don't know if it's allergies or a cold. It's something. There is evil here. So here we are at the foot of the June issue, which marks the second anniversary of Lightspeed Magazine. It's been two years since Lightspeed launched in June of 2010, and it's come a long way. With our latest accomplishment to boast, two Hugo Award nominations. Now, while we're on the subject of launching, the wheels are in motion for the launch of a brand new magazine, Nightmare. Maybe I should deliver that differently. Nightmare. Okay, if you didn't get the hint, this magazine will be devoted to horror, and the publishing model will be similar to Lightspeed. Nightmare magazine will publish four stories a month, two originals, and two reprints. We hope that you'll take a step on the dark side with us in the future. So on to this week's story. Our first science fiction offering for the June issue is The Cristobal Effect by Simon McCaffrey. Story is read for you by Stefan Rudnicki. Simon McCaffrey writes science fiction, horror, and hybrids of both genres. You can blame his father, the artist James McCaffrey, who bought him George R. Stewart's Earth Abides when he was 10. His stories have appeared in Black Static, Tomorrow SF, Alfred Hitchcock Mystery Magazine, Mondo Zombie, Space and Time, and in a number of anthologies. He lives in Tulsa with his wife, three children, and a spoiled dachshund, and is completing a novel that mixes elements of horror and emerging medical technology. Drop him a line at simonmccaffreyfiction.blogspot.com. Well, that about does it for this week's intro, so without further ado, let's make the jump to light speed. Cristobal Effect by Simon McCaffrey All existence is a theft paid for by other existences. No life flowers except on a cemetery. Remy de Gourmont Eternity 
That is one hell of a movie. JBD. The wooden detour barricade is barely in place when I spot the car closing fast from the east. Just a glint of light against the desert hills, yet I know it is his car. I ignite the last flare and toss it into the center line of the lonely rural two-lane highway. Intersecting Highway 466 is an unpaved county road. Four miles west is a second, more infamous, Y intersection, State Route 41 near Cholami. In arid, remote Cholami, working men and ranchers are returning home in rattling pickups and dust-coated sedans like so many wind-blown tumbleweeds. The car's mid-mounted 1.5-liter aluminum engine sings as it streaks toward me, gold rays of fading sunlight dancing along its sleek contours. It isn't slowing. Does he think the detour signs and hissing flares are a mirage? The trained physicist in me recognizes the irony. If I stand still and die, I prove I've entered a malleable universe, a wobbly brain. If not, he'll swerve to miss me instead of the Ford Tudor driven by a Cal Poly student and die of internal injuries as he does in all the rigid event universes, like the one in which you live. Tires shriek, and the Porsche 550 Spider slews to a stop a foot from my knees. I stare at its eternally youthful driver, the go-to-hell hair, high forehead, jutting chin, and those cool baby blues squinting at me behind tinted aviator glasses. I can hear my own heart pounding in my ears. The tiny car crouches only inches above the road. The driver and the dark-haired passenger stare up at me. What's the emergency here, friend? Detour, I stutter. A B-actor suffering from stage fright. The driver turns down the blaring radio. Say again. Detour, I repeat. Highway's blocked off. Chemical truck tipped over and sprayed poison gas everywhere a mile from here. Heck of a mess. The passenger is his racing mechanic, Rolf Wüterich dead from a 1981 auto accident after several failed suicide attempts, he grins. Taking the back roads was a bad idea. The girls will be mad if we are late. The driver scrutinizes the truck parked on the opposite shoulder. The hand-painted letters on its flaking side read Monterey County Road Department. Is he suspicious? You fellas in a hurry to get someplace? The driver cocks a finger. Got a race to win up in Salinas tomorrow. Will that road get us back on the highway? I nod, pointing with the flag. It'll take you a few miles out of your way, but not far. Go six miles and take the first right. It's that or go back the way you came. He removes his sunglasses and wipes road dust from the lenses on his white T-shirt. My mind records the tiny moon-shaped shaving cut along his chin, the way his hair curls back in carefree waves from his brow, the full, sensual lower lip, so like Brando's. Thanks for the warning, fella. Try to stay out of the middle of the road. He pops the race car named Little Bastard into gear and roars away into the twilight, the dry air whipping his hair, leaving a rooster tail of dust. I wait ten minutes in the hot, ticking silence to make certain he doesn't double back. Science fiction writers had it wrong. In rigid event universes, an infinite paper doll chain of Earths separated by a quantum frequency shift that only a device can interpolate, 
A mysterious, immutable law binds everything down to the subatomic level of reality. Elasticity is limited. Visitors may alter only the most negligible of details. In an ordinary universe, no matter what story I fabricate, he'll get lost and return to find my barricade removed, and he'll proceed to his fate. Or he'll ignore the detour and roar past on the shoulder with a one-fingered salute. Or he'll take Highway 1 north from L.A. to Salinas. In a wobbly bee, phase space is unchained and events are malleable. We have a stiff scientific acronym, Fluid Event Brains. I load the signs into the truck bed and kick the guttering flares onto the shoulder, hastily burying them under sand. A deep chime sounds inside my mind. Hurry. A two-tone Ford sedan wheezes by from the west, a lanky, bespectacled young man behind the wheel. Mr. Turnipseed, saved from a lifetime of notoriety. Half an hour later, another Ford will pass this spot, trailing the spider, a station wagon driven by photographer Sanford Roth with fellow racer Bill Hickman riding shotgun. The sun, a fiery egg, slides behind the desert foothills. Soon people will shut their windows against the cold night air and the howl of coyotes prowling the Diablo range like gray ghosts. And in the morning, James Byron Dean will stumble out of bed in a Salinas bungalow, his hair corkscrewed from sleep, and his eyes sporting the dark bags immortalized in life. Alive and ready to race on the first day of October, 1955. Brain Slicer Contraband, Case D-T-5154 Shipwrecked, 1957, James Dean, Rita Hayworth, James Garner, Robert Wagner World War II rebel James Dean and a strong supporting cast battled Japanese soldiers on a balmy Pacific atoll. Directed by George Stevens, Warner Brothers, color 137 minutes, first generation 35mm Technicolor print. Final bid, $268 million U.S. Bitter identity redacted pending prosecution. Contents of this investigation are classified by order of the Director of National Intelligence, DNI, and Department of Defense, DARPA Tunnel. It isn't time travel. Keep that firmly in mind. Traveling to the past inside one's home universe is impossible. Traveling to a precise multiverse space-time coordinate inside an adjacent reality is possible if you possess a device. Their inventor remains unknown. The trip utterly destroys every atom in your body, but a new copy of you arrives safely on the other side. It's best if you don't think about that part. My identity was erased after I stole a device and deserted my job as a military physicist, but we'll use one of the aliases I take to deal with my carefully selected, extremely wealthy clients. Jason Blackstone, Brain Slicer. That's the slang term for outlaws like me. Finding Jimmy in this 1956 isn't difficult. The scene is the Villa Capri, Jimmy's favorite Hollywood bar. It's a popular hangout for stars, including the sexually indeterminate and closeted gay actors. I spot Anthony Perkins, buxom Terry Moore, bronzed Tab Hunter, and an incredibly youthful Dennis Hopper. 
They stop at Jimmy's table to pay their respects. Rebel has opened, and teenagers are flocking to theaters. George Stevens is trying to edit Giant down to 200 minutes to meet an August release two months early because he doesn't need to secretly hire Nick Adams to dub Jimmy's muffled, drunken lines in the Last Supper scene. From my bar stool, I make eye contact. I've replaced the filthy overalls and dust with slacks and an open-throated shirt, dark hair combed back. No flicker of recognition. Brooding is Jimmy's specialty, so I step to his table and buy him a drink. He stops fooling with those bongos he carries everywhere. He has bags under his eyes and is dressed in the rig that so infuriated the studio heads until they realized its marketing potential. Scuffed boots, T-shirt, faded jeans, and a dirty leather jacket. My face is familiar, but he hasn't made the connection. We drink and talk about the races and the new Triumph 650cc Tiger motorcycle. In his nearby bungalow, he falls asleep as I rattle on about classic films and performances. He would often fall sound asleep in restaurants during conversations. When he finally stirs, I recount our meeting on the road to Cholami and Paso Robles. His face hardens in a mask of suspicion. If a ten-gallon hat were pushed back on his head, the image of Jet Rink, the angry, loveless cowboy, would be complete. He glances at my bare forearms, looking for the needle marks of a heroin addict. You're from the future, and I'm a ghost. It's a lot to process. He laughs. So is Eisenhower going to be re-elected? When are the Reds going to drop an atom bomb on New York? I'm not about to discuss a technology that shifts a conscious organism through the multiverse, burrowing through infinite brains, if you'll excuse the morbid turn of phrase. The time travel hokum works best. Jimmy stabs out a cigarette and vaults up from the sofa. He smiles, exhaling smoke from both nostrils. You're a fruitcake. I stay seated, keeping my voice low and even. Jimmy, you should at least hear what I have to say. He slips on the black leather jacket over the crumpled T-shirt and is instantly transformed into Jim Stark, the volatile middle-class rebel with smoldering eyes. I think you better hit the road. I do as he says, but pause at the door. Your first dog, Tuck, used to piss all over your Aunt Hortense's back porch in the winter next to that little black potbelly stove. Stunk like hell. Your favorite ice cream is coffee and raspberry mixed together revolting. Your favorite book is The Little Prince. Favorite poet, James Whitcomb Riley. Favorite waiter in New York, Louis Deliso at Jerry's Bar and Restaurant. Louis used to serve you plates of spaghetti on the house when your money ran out between jobs. Jimmy doesn't blink. Anybody could have dug all that up with a P.I. And the detour near Cholame? His eyes narrow. I've done lots of work on television. You recognized me. I just can't see what your angle is. Lola Barnes. That gets an instant reaction. She seduced you after the Sadie Hawkins dance your senior year in high school, and you sweated until you were certain she wasn't pregnant. He opens his mouth to reply, but I interrupt him in my omnipotent time-traveler-knows-all voice. I've studied your entire life, Jimmy, right up until the end. Stark is gone. He looks like a kid jarred awake from a nightmare only to discover that it has crawled out from under the bed. It was a near-head-on collision with a 1950 Ford sedan driven by a kid named Donald Turnipseed, I continue. 
You weren't traveling twice the speed limit, as people reported for years, but you weren't wearing a seatbelt. Rolf was thrown clear, but you were declared dead in the ambulance on the way to the hospital in Paso Robles at 5.59 Pacific time. He runs a hand wildly through his hair. This is nuts! Would I make up a name like Turnipseed? Next you'll tell me you ride around in one of those flying saucers, he says in a sulky tone. Jung was right. Flying saucers are a manifestation of our collective fears in an epoch in which mankind's own creations are more horrifying than any brimstone underworld. But parallel universes, which precede early Hindu mythology, are quite real. This jaunt has almost expired. I protect unique lost works of art, like twentieth-century motion pictures. So why me? I'm a nobody. This is the hook, and the only undeniable truth. You're one of the greatest actors of your generation, and three films wasn't enough. You'll have the opportunity to develop your craft and not be pigeonholed as the bad boy rebel. Isn't that what you've dreamed of since you raised sheep on your uncle's farm? Disbelief and desperate hope collide in his eyes like a storm front. What if I decide to never step in front of the camera again? He crosses his arms, dips his chin. That willful petulance. I smile. Jimmy, it's your life and future. Except with one possible caveat. Oh, yeah? When I saved your life, I created a small fracture in reality, like a fault line. What does that mean? If you move back to Indiana and become a dentist, events could snap back like a rubber band. You mean... His enigmatic mother, Mildred Dean, succumbed to ovarian cancer when he was nine. She has haunted his life. Jimmy's greatest anxiety is the specter of death, and he instinctively rejected the afterlife espoused by his aunt and uncle. That's the lever I use. You'll die, Jimmy, like you were meant to. Brain Slicer Contraband Case DT2756 Diana, My Story, 2017, autobiography of the former Princess of Wales chronicling her privileged childhood, education, life before and after Prince Charles, motherhood, her second and third marriages, a failed 2008 suicide attempt, and her rededication to charitable work. Random House, 398 pages, stated first edition, signed by the author. Bid. 71 million euros. Convicted bitter identity redacted. In 1974, an Air Force corporal named Pete Moss, no more a joke name than Turnipseed, found a small transistor radio that wasn't a radio. It was constructed using highly advanced fabrication technologies, unrecognizable at the time. A device's invisible skin resembles graphene, Incredibly strong layers of carbon arranged in a hexagon honeycomb lattice an atom thick. Inside, there are no solid-state circuits or chips. Instead, intricate networks of nanomachines and quantum computers the size of large molecules link with other devices across universes using an entanglement codec like a cosmic GPS unit, calibrating frequency shifts and navigation. Devices aren't solid objects in the conventional sense, and they easily take the form of ordinary items. 
chromatic surface particles coordinating to mimic a pack of cigarettes or a smartphone. Moss's discovery lay forgotten in Pentagon storage for 45 years, until a brilliant young DARPA analyst named Dick Jenks activated it. More on Jenks later. DARPA tunnel physicists failed to reverse-engineer the devices, but they uncovered a wholly unexpected view of existence, that endless paper-doll chain of Earths characterized by a puzzling, dominant sameness. All those stories we loved of snuffing out Hitler or arming the Rebs with machine guns or stopping Oswald from murdering JFK, hopeless. And the devices impose three primary restrictions. Considering that we're still homicidal primates, I think that's fortunate, don't you? You cannot visit a future coordinate on another Earth. Maybe this is a fundamental law of travel of the multiverse, or maybe it's a governor function. Second, you can never revisit the same coordinate in the same universe. Third, you always arrive on Earth. The devices don't double as transdimensional portals to Altair IV or exoplanets like Gliese 581G. A tunnel subteam is exploring this possibility. A cornucopian new world of raw material would vault America back to superpower status. If there's an indigenous population, well, I think of Chris Columbus and Shudder. Dick Jenks whimsically called it the Cristobal effect. The devices deny us the tantalizing power to redirect history, but someone with access could employ one in that most signature human enterprise, making astounding amounts of money on a black market unlike any in history. Brain slicers. What exactly were you expecting? You're some kind of criminal, aren't you? We're poking around the engine of Jimmy Spider, parked at the edge of a dusty Bakersfield raceway. It's March 20th, 1956. I grin at Jimmy. I prefer the term rebel. Beneath that teen idol exterior, he's a maelstrom of driven ambition and vulnerability. You've got to tell me one thing, he asks. Am I going to win it this time? You'll have to wait, I'm afraid. I clap an oil-blackened hand on Jimmy's shoulder, and he winces. Eight days later, he beats out Anthony Quinn, Robert Stack, and Anthony Perkins to accept the Best Supporting Actor Academy Award for Giant. I studied film history at Columbia while majoring in particle physics. I loved the magic of early cinema before digital effects and motion capture, so it's easy to convince myself that I'm doing a great thing saving important films that should have been made, etc. The row of glowing numbers in my encrypted offshore bank account strongly suggests that I am as full of shit as Dick Jenks. Ask yourself why Christopher Columbus petitioned various European crowns for nearly a decade to finance his dream of a quicker trade route to India. Any classroom of overfed American children will tell you that the son of a wool weaver and sometimes cheese stand merchant was a visionary explorer whose brave tenacity forever changed world history. Forget that their nation is erected atop a graveyard of butchered and displaced human beings. Forget the titles, Admiral of the Ocean Seas, and Riches, Hispaniola Gold, and 10% of all profits made in the new lands that drove Columbus to make four hazardous journeys to the new world. 
Catholic priest Bartolomé de las Casas cataloged the crimes committed against the people discovered by Columbus and his hired Spaniards during the years of single-minded pursuit of wealth and prestige. My eyes have seen these acts so foreign to human nature, and now I tremble as I write. Humans are explorers, but our motivations haven't changed since before we stood fully upright. For myself, money is no longer a valid motivation. The next films are purely for art, for posterity. Jimmy's name, in glowing ruby capitals, dwarfs even the picture's title, Shipwrecked, atop the Grauman's Chinese Theater marquee. Inside the lobby, I stopped to admire a movie poster depicting Jimmy battling Japanese soldiers on a lush Pacific atoll. Jimmy gleams like a knight in his pearl-white navy uniform, a blazing forty-five colt in either hand. A banner blares, George Stevens's greatest epic yet, and over two years in the making. I shake my head in wonderment. In an eternity of 1957s, the bridge on the River Kwai dominated the awards. But now? I approach Jimmy, with Ursula Andress at his side, radiating glamour like a quasar. I pluck a fluted glass of champagne from a passing waiter and spill it down the front of Jimmy's tuxedo jacket. The sycophants surrounding him draw back, aghast. God almighty, I'm sorry. Let me get you cleaned up. Inside the men's washroom, I dab away at his soggy jacket with a wet silk handkerchief, but he shoves me against the porcelain sink. You! That was intentional, but my hands are shaking, I say. I'm about to see the fourth great James Dean film. You once said you wanted to do Hamlet while you were young and recreate the role of Billy the Kid on screen. The future is yours. He glares into the ornate mirror. You'll come back for those, too. He turns, and the bipolar, fear-shrouded Jimmy emerges. I ain't afraid of the future. I'm afraid of you. I have awful dreams after you go wherever. I didn't sell the spider because of what that fop Guinness said in the papers. I just couldn't stand writing it anymore. I'm not some damned puppet. Jimmy pivots and punches me in the face. Flash bulbs pop inside my head and I sag to the tiled floor. Sorry about the eye, Jimmy says, but I've got a reputation to maintain. The tissue around my eye tingles and swells. I grin up at him. No need to apologize. This body, face, and sizzling nerve endings will be annihilated in fifteen minutes. Jimmy stalks out to rejoin his waiting entourage. Brain Slicer Contraband Case DT6987 The Wolf, 1905, Frank Norris, Doubleday, Page and Company, 354 pages. Norris's final naturalist novel in his sweeping The Epic of the Wheat trilogy, following The Octopus and the Pit, describes the American-grown wheat relieving a famine-stricken village in Europe. Signed cloth-bound first edition. Bid $48.6 million U.S. Buyer identity redacted based on plea bargain to assist in the apprehension of the seller. The paramount rule in the unwritten Brain Slicer's Guide to Survival is don't get caught. The second rule is never get altruistic about your work. You're a quantum-tunneling conquistador, not Captain Kirk. The only prime directive is to make money. 
Consider the tale of Dick Jenks. Jenks was obsessed with Lennon. He abandoned his research and became the founding father of brain slicers so he could prevent the shooting outside the Dakota and allow his idol's musical renaissance to flourish beyond double fantasy and the posthumous incomplete Milk and Honey. Jenks tried to intercede on a thousand Earths and watched Lennon die again and again. He eventually located a wobbly bee, but the DT boys were closing in, and he cracked. Jenks disguised himself as Lennon, identical clothes, black wire-rimmed glasses, and a wig. He arrived 60 seconds ahead of schedule, and Chapman, waiting in the gloom, emptied his pistol into Jenks instead. Lennon was so shaken by the near-miss that he withdrew from public life, went back on H, and turned the paranoid dial up to 10. He died of an overdose on Christmas Eve, 1980. Poor Jenks. It wasn't the Wobbly. Having auctioned the shipwrecked print, my plan is to undergo extensive gene therapy and pop back into my wonderful Wobbly to, say, the high-flying 1990s, stow the device somewhere and live off interest. But first... What the hell is this, Jimmy says. We're on the Universal Backlot in the Old West Town, spring 1963. It's the Hitchcock script I gave you. It'll be groundbreaking, like Psycho. Hitchcock will be back on top and you'll win another Oscar. Kaleidoscope is the crypt-dark Hitchcock masterpiece that every studio passed on, the story of a handsome young serial killer told from the murderer's perspective. He planned to shoot it using handheld cameras, three decades before the Blair Witch Project. Only Jimmy could invoke the necessary mix of sex appeal and tortured soul. He's a rapist, Jimmy says. What would my fans think? He drops the script and walks away, spurs jingling. Jimmy's career is in a tailspin. He is arrested for beating a gossip columnist over a scathing review of his Hamlet, and again when he breaks a director's nose after a botched scene in Billy the Kid Rides Again with John Wayne. The studio heads are tired of the drinking, reckless driving between films and scandals. Jimmy is 33 and looks 45. He's uninsurable. Jack Warner dumps him. Paramount signs and then drops him after he walks off the set of A Love Triangle with Jane Fonda and Paul Newman. Jimmy cables Hitchcock and tells him what a fat, sick bastard he is. MCA drops the project. I confront Jimmy in his trailer on the set of The Horror of Party Beach. It is June 1964, and Jimmy's hair is thinning, his face hollowed. The trailer reeks of sour beer and marijuana. His dust-covered bongos are piled in one corner, half buried by soiled clothes. I am dressed as a stagehand. The director is waiting for you. Jimmy is sprawled on a sofa bed, drinking from a bottle of Jack Daniels. He glares at the walls and motions for me to leave. I say, remember when you shot East of Eden? You used to whistle when you were ready for a scene. It was a signal you and Kazan worked out. Jimmy flinches and his arm knocks the bottle off the sofa. He watches whiskey gurgle onto the dirty carpet before grabbing it. He staggers to his feet, and I recoil from the anguish in his eyes. Jimmy! He gestures around the trailer. Not exactly the Chateau Marmont, is it? I was just doing this little picture to broaden my range. 
He laughs, a humorless whistling sound. Will I win an Oscar for this one? He hurls something and I duck. The whiskey bottle spins over my head to shatter against the wall. Jimmy removes a small blue steel revolver from the mirrored counter and crosses the length of the trailer with surprising speed, kicking litter out of his way. His pale, whiskered face looks feral. He aims the pistol at my head and cocks the hammer. Stop screwing with my life. His eyes are flat like a shark's. The chime sounds inside my mind. I back slowly to the door. I gave you a second chance, Jimmy. I warned you about instability. I think you've been lying to me from the start, he says, and his finger whitens on the trigger. At 46, Jimmy is unrecognizable. The hair clinging to his scalp in a widow's peak is gray and closely cropped. His face is an atlas of wrinkles. His eyes are roomy and vacant. The tip of his left ear is missing. It is November 1977. I sit beside him on the park bench and sling birdseed to a motley band of Central Park pigeons. Jimmy smokes a lumpy hand-rolled cigarette and stares straight through the bright clusters of playground children. Given the gift of years, his feverish passion for his craft should have blossomed. But his soul was eaten away by the moths of time, like Wells and Brando. If he were alive, crazy Dick Jenks would be rolling on the damp pavement, roaring laughter, scaring the pigeons. Hello, Jimmy. His head swivels like a gun turret, his eyes focused. So I didn't kill you. No, but it was very close. His face crumples like newspaper. Have you spoken to your daughter? Have you thought about working again? Something small, like off-Broadway theater? Defiant fire stokes behind Jimmy's eyes. I see Jim Stark, not a broken, prematurely old man. You can go straight to hell. I place a white envelope on the bench seat. Jimmy flicks away the cigarette butt and leans close enough for me to smell his poverty and despair. Money inside? What I want is to wake up and all of this be a bad dream. He grabs the scarf around my neck in his wiry hands and hauls me to my feet. His voice rises in pitch, the lost sound of a frightened child. I want to be young again. I want to be famous again. His eyes tear up. I want to be great again. You can wind all this back. He chokes. And this time you don't put up that detour. Jimmy, I can't return to the same places and times but I have a plan. He opens the envelope as if it might contain a black widow and shakes the contents into his palm. Marlboro cigarettes and a small drift of diamonds. He scatters the gemstones to the pigeons and tosses me the cigarettes. I quit in prison. Wait, that's not a pe I stop. Jimmy shuffles away, gloveless hands buried in frayed coat pockets, disappearing into the gray New York streets he once haunted. Columbus, our merchant apostle, fervently believed that as lord of Hispaniola he would bring piety and civilization to the barbarous Los Indios he ruled, but all he brought was epidemic and atrocity. He died a bitter pauper, unable to return to the New World with more ships and soldiers. Until his last breath, he remained convinced he could rectify his mistakes and his reputation. In uncounted worlds, 
Jimmy is preserved as a youthful, misunderstood, lost soul of post-war cinema, his mystery secure and eternal. Just look at what I've reduced him to in this one. I return the identical device disguised as a pack of smokes into my coat pocket next to its twin. A chime, and the park vanishes in a silent white supernova. The little car is a nimble bullet. I blink and grip the steering wheel with white-knuckled hands, feeling my right foot pressing the accelerator pedal. The desert wind screams past, and the supercharger howls in answer. I glance in the little side mirror and see Jimmy's twenty-four-year-old face. No, my face. Our face. Memory pours back like freezing stream water. I return after the older, broken Jimmy shuffles away, the pigeons pecking at diamonds, and they're waiting for me. Commando shapes in night gear, the cough and bee sting of subsonic missiles striking my upper back and neck, a short fall into blackness. Better ease off a bit, says Rolf Wutterich, resurrected from dust to take this fateful ride again. Shoot the piston, and you won't be racing for a week. I forgot to tell you how they dispose of brain slicers. They might strand you 350 million years ago in Paleozoic Kansas when it was a vast lowland swamp, part of the supercontinent Russia, a tasty lunch for the 20-foot crocodiles and meter-long scorpions. Or your consciousness is transmitted into the cranium of a pinstripe-suited stockbroker right before the first airliner knifes into the WTC North Tower on 9-11, experiencing that doomed soul's final moments of stark terror. The last mile unwinds like the final reel of a familiar film. The radio plays Love's Old Sweet Song. A hawk flaps up from a telephone pole. The mechanical clock in the spider's dashboard reads 5.39 p.m. We round a bend and cruise down a mild hill toward the 41 junction. A car is waiting, a 50 Ford Tudor idling on the center line. Jimmy's heart, my heart, begins hammering a slow drum roll. Sweat rolls into my eyes. Piloted by the dependable Donald Turnipseed, the Ford hesitates, then lurches across the ash-colored highway. Rolf shouts above the wind as I veer directly into its path. His hand reaches for the wheel, and I bat it away. No sense in fighting fate, unless you're in a wobbly. The blunt chrome nose of the Ford blots out the high, deep blue sky. I glimpse its driver's white face. It's a good death, and just penance for my avarice. Jimmy's face smiles in the mirror, young again, immortal again. In that last instant before we hit... I give him a wink. Welcome back. This story was a pleasantly wild ride and clever. The science details arose in a conversational way that's accessible, and I think that that's the way to go. The occupation of the protagonist is cool, preserving art that should have been made or could have been made. Like many time travel alternate universe fiction, 
Well, it's not time travel and I'm generalizing, which the author might wallop me for. What was I saying? I lost the thought. It's probably on the floor. <laughs> Watch where you step. Ah, yes. Rather like the C.C. Finley story as a recent example, involving Chuck Berry. This story takes us to a historical or famous figure with whom we're familiar, James Dean, among others mentioned in Hollywood. This makes it more accessible to us also. It even makes the reader feel like they're in on it as a conspirator. It's someone we know, even if indirectly by history and their legacy. I would like to think the propensity for stories to do this lies with that, more so than with it being an extension of people's fascination with famous people who are fundamentally just people. Usually damaged people who, like anybody else, want to be appreciated. I think this story touches on that just right. Damaged people. What a thing to say. But you know, if they weren't damaged to begin with, fame will mess you up just fine. Don't get me wrong, some love being the center of attention always, others not so much. It depends on their psychological flavor, I guess. What most have in common, they have a need to work, and what powers that need varies. Anyway, I digressed. <laughs> when you stick around for these outros, you never know what you're going to get with this fella at the mic. Okay, so let's run through a few reminders, such as about our ebook subscriptions through Weightless Books and also through Amazon.com. Those subscribers will have every issue delivered automatically to their Kindle library, whether it's an actual Kindle or one of the Kindle apps. I still don't have a Kindle or an ebook reading device myself. Then again, I don't have a cell phone either. Not yet. I'll refrain from making the appropriate dinosaur sounds. Also, don't forget about the variety of ways you can be notified of new Lightspeed content. You can subscribe to our free monthly newsletter or RSS feed. You can follow us on Twitter, like our fan page on Facebook, or you can add us to your circles on Google+. If you visit lightspeedmagazine.com and click on this month's editorial, you'll find links to all of our social media pages. To subscribe to this podcast, comment on the story that you heard in this podcast, or read additional stories from Lightspeed Magazine, visit lightspeedmagazine.com. Thanks for listening. That's all for now. Cheers from all of us at Lightspeed Magazine. Lightspeed. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.